0: Did you get those for Christmas? Oh, got for Christmas. You got your boots for Christmas? Mm-hmm. Shiny. All right, come on in, guys. All right, so we're going to use our imaginations to start off this morning, okay? I want you to imagine that you're 15 years old. It's a long ways away, right? So you're 15 years old and your parents, they're going to go on a date and they're going to leave you at home and you're going to stay by yourself. Okay? Is 15, is 15 old enough to do that? Yes. Yeah, I think so, right? Okay. I couldn't tell from your reactions if I would made a mistake or not. All right, so you're at home. You're 15. You're staying by yourself. And while you're hanging out by yourself, doing whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing, you hear a knock at the door. You look through the peephole, and you see one of your neighbors. Now, should we open the door? Probably not. Mom and dad said not to do that, right? Yeah. But let's say in the store you do, because you're not listening to mom and dad. You open the door, and all of a sudden the neighbors barge in. They got a bunch of their stuff with them, and they start moving their stuff into your house, and they start throwing your stuff out. Now, this isn't cool, right? This isn't what's supposed to be happening. What are some of the things we might say to our neighbors if they were doing that? Stop! Stop. <laughs> okay. Call the police! Why are you doing this? Where's your house, dude? Right? Do you think that we would say something like, hey, man, whenever mom and dad get back, you're going to be in big trouble? Yeah? Yeah. And you're going to get arrested. Breaking and entering. That is a felony. You are correct. Now, let's say that while the neighbors are in the house, mom and dad pull into the driveway. And we look at our neighbors and we go, Ooh. <laughs> oh, they're home. You're going to get it. But your parents walk into the house, and they don't kick the neighbors out of your house at all. Instead, your mom and dad invite your neighbors to join their family. Your mom and dad tell your neighbors that they will love them just like they're one of your own, their own children. Now, would that confuse you? Yeah. yeah, I'd be confused by that too, right? Why do these strangers get to be in our family? That's not fair. That's not right. Now, this story that I'm telling, the imagination that we're using right here, it's a little bit different, but if you know the book of Matthew, it records a story kind of similar to this. Did you know that? I mean, surely it's not neighbors in the same way, but it is very similar. In today's sermon, I want you to listen to what that story is, okay? Any questions? Perfect. We did it right. Oh, one question. Yes, you can be 18. (laughs) Yes. Next time I will make you a voting age. I apologize for that. All right, back to your seat, guys. For those who didn't hear, there was one child that was not satisfied that he was only 15. He wanted to be 18 in the next (laughs) analogy. So each gospel records very similar events and conversations. The commonalities that they share are unmistakable, and the reason that they share so much in common is because each gospel is telling the same story. But even though each gospel tells the same story, it isn't uncommon for one gospel to record something that the others leave out. You see, for all their similarities, each gospel has a slightly different focus. Each gospel is telling the same story from a slightly different angle. Now, why in the world would the gospel writers do such a thing? Why is the approach of one gospel different from another? Why not just tell the same story in the same way? Well, recall what just took place with the children's sermon. The way that I spoke with the children and youth, it's different from the way I'm speaking now. My tone, my cadence have changed. My speech has become a bit more formal. And the reason for that change is no more complicated than my primary audience has changed. And the same is true for the Gospels themselves. So to whom was Matthew speaking? Who was his primary audience? And how might that have changed his approach? Well, we find a clue in who Matthew in how Matthew tells the Christmas story. Did you know that Matthew leaves out the angel's appearance to the shepherd? He omits the shepherd's coming to worship Jesus as well. Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy and the birth of John the Baptist, they're cut from the story. And he even leaves out Jesus' circumcision and presentation at the temple. Now, Matthew knew about all of those things, and he believed them just as much as the other gospel authors. But Matthew omits them because the people to whom he directed his gospel seemed to require a different approach. So, who was Matthew's audience? Well, What do Levitical shepherds, John the Baptist, circumcision on the eighth day and presenting your newborn at the temple all have in common? What connects them? They're all thoroughly Jewish. So Matthew leaves out the most Jewish parts of the story because of his audience. You want to guess who Matthew's target audience was? Plot twist, it was the Jews. Now, why on earth would Matthew direct his gospel towards Jews and purposely leave out some of the most Jewish elements of the story? And why in their place would Matthew then include three foreign Gentile astronomers? Well, I think Matthew makes those decisions because he's addressing a central Jewish paradox. How could the Jews for thousands of years anticipate the coming of the Messiah and then reject and murder him when he came? And I think Matthew includes the three wise men in his story because they are the very beginning of an answer to that question. You see, the Jewish picture of the Messiah was that of a a political leader, someone who was going to come in and kick the pagan Romans out of the land and establish Israel as a sovereign nation. The Jews looked for a day when they, God's chosen people, would never again suffer at the hands of the unclean masses. In the Messiah, they would finally have a king they could rally behind and aid him in establishing his kingdom over the whole earth. But there was just one tiny problem. When Jesus, the long awaited Messiah, finally came, he didn't fit Israel's picture of the Messiah. He spent his days consorting with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was hanging out with Samaritans and demon-possessed men who lived in graveyards. He would say things like, When a Roman asks you to carry his shield for a mile, why don't you carry it for two? He wasn't raising an army to smite the enemies of Israel. Instead, he was telling them to forgive their enemies. When Jesus described his kingdom, it sounded nothing like David's kingdom. David's kingdom. Jesus never spoke one word about subduing the Gentile nations around Israel. Instead, Jesus described the coming destruction of the temple and the ruin of Jerusalem. This Messiah and his kingdom were nothing like what the Jews expected. He was nothing like any of the other kings of this world. And there was a really simple answer why. Neither Jesus nor his kingdom were from this world. Neither drew their quality, their legitimacy, or their appearance from this world. So as the Jews compared Jesus to a king from this world, they always found them to be images in conflict. Images in conflict because the kings of this world don't come from the same place as Jesus. And Matthew sees this. He knows the mistake the Jews are making about Jesus. He knows this error so well because this error was once his own. And so from the outset of his gospel, Matthew seeks to show his Jewish brothers and sisters what they've missed about the Messiah. Matthew begins his gospel by using the three wise men as a way to expose what the Jews are missing, as a way to highlight a central flaw in the Jewish picture of the Messiah. Matthew records the three wise men coming to worship Jesus in order to illustrate one glaring thing. Jesus, the Messiah, may be rooted in Israel. He was born in Israel, and he is in the lineage of King David himself. He really was the king of the Jews. But the king of this kingdom would not be bound by political or geographical lines. His kingship, his rule would not be limited to Israel just because he was Jewish. The whole world would be under His rule. And by His authority, the whole world was being called to come and join Him in His kingdom. Jew and Gentile, Pharisee and tax collector, every single person in the entire scope of human history was being called into the kingdom of the Jewish Messiah. But many in Israel couldn't conceive of such a thing. The Messiah's kingdom would be filled with Jew and Gentile alike? Entrance into the Messiah's kingdom wasn't predicated on your bloodline? The Messiah's kingdom wasn't bound by nationality, it wasn't defined by ethnicity or race. Many in Israel misunderstood a crucial fact. Jesus was not focused on ending the Roman occupation at all. He was not focused on the political of enemy of of the political enemies of Israel in the least. Instead, the focus of Jesus was set on the greatest enemy humanity had ever known. Jesus came to confront and defeat not the tyranny of Caesar, but the tyranny of sin and death. And Jesus, being a king not from this world, fought unlike any other king the world had ever seen. Jesus would fight the concentrated evil of this world by taking the best shot the forces of darkness could muster. This king would take the full weight of evil and sin into himself. He would swallow up death itself and bear in his very body everything corrupted in the whole ruined world. And what no one could see coming was that by consuming everything ruined and sinful, by possessing them as his own, there was now nothing outside of his authority to forgive and make right. This is the overwhelming reality that is first hinted when three wise men come and worship at the feet of a mere child. The Messiah the wise men worshiped entered into the sinful world in order to bear the sinful world in himself. The name above all names lowered himself into humanity, into a fallen creation, and then lowered himself further still into death. And he did all of this so that nothing, not even your death, should keep you from him. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a shepherd tending his flock, or a magi from the east, he was calling to you. He was calling you out of the tyranny of sin, out from under the curse of death. He calls to you that you might make his dwelling in you, that you might make yours in him. And by doing that, nothing can separate you from him. Nothing can keep you from him. Not an evil world, not powerful people, not even your death will have the final say over you. And death is no stranger to any of us. Someday, sooner or later, we will all face death's cruelty. Even Jesus found this to be true. But can I tell you, When your time comes, when my time comes, we will not face death alone. Because the Messiah has gone before us into death. And by his resurrection has made a way for us out of death. And for those who are in Christ, death has no power. Death has no claim over you. Death cannot hold on to those who belong to Jesus because death could not hold on to Jesus himself. And this is the the beautiful paradox of Epiphany. This is the beautiful story that many in Israel could not see. Jesus was their king. He was their long-awaited Messiah. But this king would ascend to a cross, not a throne. Their Messiah would take a, a symbol of shame and cruelty and transform it into a symbol of love and forgiveness. He would take death itself and by his own death transform death into the conduit through which we meet him face to face. And Matthew wants to show this beautiful news to his Jewish brothers and sisters. He wants them to zoom out of their picture of the Messiah as just a political leader. And he wants them to see that the Messiah has come for the whole world, not just Israel. And he begins this in the birth narrative. By focusing not on the most Jewish of elements, but on the most foreign of ones. Matthew draws our attention to three Gentile kings that from hundreds of miles away recognized the arrival of the Jewish Messiah. And their response was to travel for weeks and months so that they might worship him as well. While from mere miles away, the so-called king of the Jews, King Herod, Well, he was seeking the Messiah for a very different reason. Over and over again, Matthew points out to his Jewish brothers and sisters that the Messiah may be Jewish, but that did not limit his dominion to Israel. It would not prevent him from going to the Gentiles and calling them into his kingdom as well. Matthew shows us that you aren't in the Messiah's kingdom just because you're Jewish. Just look at Herod. And you aren't outside of the Messiah's kingdom just because you're a Gentile. Just look at the three wise men. Guys, this is what Epiphany is all about. The kingdom the Jewish Messiah came to establish was bigger than anyone expected. It encompassed more than anyone could have guessed. Guys, Epiphany is the celebration that the kingdom of Israel's Messiah encompasses the whole world. Epiphany is the celebration that the king of the Jews is our king as well. Amen.